So last week I had the privilege of returning to the first church that I was minister of. It is eight and a half years since I left Leicestershire and this was the first time I had gone back. You can have a look at that photo and play Where's Wally? I'm in there somewhere. A special occasion was taking place. They were opening and dedicating a brand new building. And the reason that they'd invited me was because 10 years ago, I had been the one who kick-started the project. When I was there, the old buildings were falling down and something had to be done. And by the time I left in 2014, we'd employed an architect and we decided upon some exciting plans. And it's taken them eight years since then to realise the dream. And I have to say, the building is stunning. It is light, it is modern, it is comfortable, yet it maintains the character and the history of a church that is over 350 years old. It is a welcoming and inspiring place that will bring a new lease of life to the congregation. And already they have some exciting new outreach activities planned. And the people of the church are rightly proud of their new building. And as a result, last weekend was a great celebration. I took my place within the congregation and the atmosphere was electric. There was a buzz about the place. The worship was upbeat. The preaching was excellent. The prayer time was powerful. There was a smile on every face. Every face that was perhaps apart from mine. I was happy. I I truly was happy. So pleased for the church. But I imagine that my face was more a picture of contemplation rather than outright joy. Because as I sat there within the service, I was hit by a series of flashbacks. And I suddenly found myself picturing meetings that had taken place within this church and replaying the conversations. You see, if I'm honest, my four years of ministry there were incredibly tough. And the reason for that was that there had been a great church split in the vacancy before my arrival. Accusations had been made and they'd been responded to with counter-accusations. The diaconate was split, the congregation was split, even families were split by what had taken place. And I remember in my early days there, I felt like I was constantly having to tread carefully and work out on which side the person was before I spoke to them. Church meetings were acrimonious and exhausting. And in truth, it was very sad. And for a brand new minister, fresh out of college, it was utterly bewildering. And eventually enough was enough. This could not go on. It was a terrible witness to the community and people were leaving the church. So after a long process of trying to listen to both sides and earnestly praying about it, I ended up hosting a reconciliation service. And to everyone's credit, they entered this service with great integrity. There was confession, There was Bible teaching, we shared communion together, and the service finished in a mixture of hugs and tears. Now, it'd be naive to say that everything was resolved overnight. Pain and anger take a long time to work through, but something really 
changed. The church was on a new path. And as I sat in that church last Sunday morning, I was remembering that earlier service. I was remembering how hard it was and how I'd been completely out of my depth, way beyond my level of ability. It was truly God that worked in that service, not me. But then I realised something. This brilliant new building that I was sat in was the fruit of that night. This new building was the evidence that that reconciliation attempted had been genuine. The new peace that had been created paved the way for God's new purposes to be achieved. And during the service last week, they showed a slideshow of photographs on the building project. They showed the laying of the foundations and the pouring of the first concrete. But I know that that building is not built on steel and concrete at all. It's built on love and forgiveness. It's built on reconciliation. I laughed a lot last Sunday. I also cried last Sunday. It was so good to see how God had been at work reconciling the church in order to bring about a whole new beginning. Now, I hope that story didn't sound boastful. I'm sorry if it did. But the only reason I tell it to you is because I think it's a very good illustration of what Paul is trying to say in this passage of Colossians. Remember that in the early years of the first century, the young church in Colossae was in serious trouble. There was physical persecution around. Many Christians like Paul were ending up in jail or worse, some were losing their lives. But there was also something else, something more subtle and more difficult to deal with. There was a new teaching that had been brought into the church, a new philosophy born out of the spirit of the age, a doctrine incompatible with the gospel of Jesus. And these young Colossian believers were being told that faith in Jesus was no longer enough for salvation. Jesus on his own couldn't guarantee forgiveness or life after death. Instead, the Colossians had to do a whole host of other things on top of their belief in Jesus. They had to worship angels and eat special food and observe certain rituals and beat their bodies when they prayed. And this dangerous philosophy was creating great doubt in the believers' minds. They'd only been Christians for a short time, and many were now unsure as to whether their newfound faith was real at all. By the time Paul wrote this letter, some had already left the church. So why did Paul write this letter? Well, he wrote it for one reason. To tell the Colossians that in Jesus Christ they had everything they needed. It was Jesus and only Jesus that they needed to hold on to, despite what the new teachers were telling them. And throughout the letter, Paul gives multiple reasons why Jesus is supreme and sovereign and the one true saviour. Last week, you read some wonderful verses that explained how Jesus is God. He was present at the creation of the world. Indeed, all the world was made through him and for him and is held together by him right now. He's no mere man that we can take or leave. He is fully 
divine. But this week, Paul moves on to the next reason for holding on to Jesus. The reason we must never let go of Christ is because Jesus is the only means for us to be reconciled back to God. And as we are reconciled back to God, we are reconciled to one another. The whole theme of this short passage is about reconciliation. A reconciliation so vital that every single one of us still need to know it today. So let's explore this passage together. We'll take it slowly, building it up through some simple steps. The first question to ask is, well, why did the Colossians need reconciliation with God in the first place? Where was it that all this began? Well, in verse 21, Paul starts off in the bluntest way you could possibly imagine. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. Now, I think you'll agree there are some very strong words here. Alienated from God. Enemies of God in their minds. Up to evil behavior. Ouch. What does Paul mean? Well, Paul knows that it wasn't all that long ago that the Colossians didn't know the Lord God at all. After all, they were Gentiles from what is now modern Turkey. They were not part of Israel. They knew nothing of God's dealings with the likes of Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. They didn't know God's law and his purposes. They didn't know God's love or how following his wise instructions would lead to great blessing. But that's not to say that the Colossians didn't worship anything, for they did. They worshipped the various idols of the ancient world, all the fertility gods and goddesses common amongst pagan people. And what Paul is reminding the Colossians of here is that it really matters who you worship, because our lives come to reflect them. You see, what we worship comes to control our mind. And what we fill our mind with comes to control our behaviour. And if we never think of the one true God, the Lord of love and life, we're going to miss out on all the good things that he has planned for us. After all, we're his people made in his image. Now, you may think that all this talk of idol worship, well, that's a bit old hat, but it's not. Because many people put things in the place of God still today. And all those things are idols, just as much as the fertility gods were of the first century. And still today, we become like the idols we worship. Let me give you some examples. In the UK, every Sunday... More people are worshipping at the temple of materialism than they are the Lord Jesus. What I mean by that is there are more people in shopping centres than church. And if you live your life where clothes and gadgets are the most important things to you, slowly but surely, you'll become more and more discontent. You will need more and more, and you'll become more selfish and more greedy And your mood will become dependent on whether you can afford the latest thing being advertised on the telly. Many people today worship money and sex and power 
And as a result, we will trample over anyone in our way to get more of them. Many people today put all their spare time into films and video games. And surprise, surprise, the more time we spend watching violence and listening to swearing, the more we swear and become violent towards others. You see, none of us live in a vacuum. We all worship something. If we worship God, we slowly become more like him. If we worship idols, we slowly become more like them. If you want to put it another way, the more we idolise things that are sinful, the more we want to do sinful things ourselves. Eventually, the more sinful things we do ourselves. This vicious cycle is set up, one which we cannot pull ourselves out from, and sin comes to control us. This is what Paul means when he talks about being alienated from God, enemies in our minds, and finding ourselves up to evil behaviour. You know, we need to get away from this notion that sin or wickedness is just having a good time when God really wants to spoil our fun. Not at all. A life of sin is one ruled by something other than God. And the result of that is that we miss out and we realise far less of the very good things that God has in store for us. And in Paul's mind, this was the position of the Colossians before they met Jesus. This is the position we are all in before we meet Jesus and put our trust in him. So if that was what life was like for the Colossians previously, well, what's their life like now? Remember, Paul is writing to a young church. He's writing to people who have put their trust in Jesus. He's urging them to hold on to Jesus. So how does Paul conceive the Colossians' life now? Well, the language he uses is very different. Instead of words like alienation and enemies and evil, he uses words like holy and without blemish and free. Listen again. But now you are holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. What do those words mean? Well, holy is the exact opposite of alienation. If you are holy, you've been set apart. You have been deemed so special you are reserved for God. If you are holy, you're not left out in the cold, but you're brought near into God's presence. If you are holy, you're no longer isolated or alone. You are welcomed into God's home. Alienation implies distance. Holiness implies closeness. On the TV at the moment, we're witnessing thousands of people crowding outside royal palaces. Balmoral, Windsor, Buckingham Palace. But none of them are getting in, are they? They're deemed unworthy or a threat to royalty. If you climb over the gate, you are not welcome. You are a trespasser. You're going to be arrested. But as holy, the Colossian believers are formally welcomed into God's royal presence. They are invited before his throne. They are fit to meet the king of kings. 
Paul says the Colossians are now without blemish. This is a metaphor of purity. It's the opposite of having the mind of an enemy. In the ancient world, people used to lay their hands on animals that were without blemish before they sacrificed them to God. And this act was a prayer for a good conscience. And only a perfect animal would do the job. Well, Paul says the Colossians in Jesus are without blemish. They've been made pure, spotless. The balance of their minds restored. And finally, Paul says the Colossians are free from accusation. Very clearly, that is imagery from a law court. The Colossians no longer have anything to feel guilty about. No judicial sentence is coming their way. Because all their evil behaviour has been forgiven. And they're now free to go. Can you see, Paul thinks the Colossians are now in the exact opposite position to what they were before they met Jesus. So how did this happen? How did this great transformation of circumstance come about? Well, this is the vital step. The key truth that Paul wants his readers to hold on to. What happened? They were reconciled by Christ. Let's put all that we've looked at together. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. We have been reconciled by Christ's physical body through death. That is what happened. That is the great change that's taken place in our lives. But what does that mean? We're all familiar with the concept of reconciliation. My opening illustration was just one example. We could all come up with many more. Reconciliation occurs when two warring sides are brought together. The Bible says that when we lived a life worshipping idols... When we lived our life under the power of sin, we were effectively at war against God. Every time we did a bad act, we were actively opposing the good act that God made us for and wanted us to do. And in wartime, enmity and hostility builds up. And for many people, that's how they think about God today, with great distrust. But listen to the glorious message of the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, all of that enmity, all of that hostility that keeps human beings shut off from God was inflicted upon him. On the physical body of Christ, all the violence of our sin was aimed. (coughs) And what that means is that when Jesus died under that attack, all of our distrust and all of our aggression died with him. All of our sin was put to death with him. It was removed from us, taken away. It now lies in a grave. It cannot come back. And as a result, we are now free to have a reconciled relationship with God. The relationship that God always intended us to have with him. I know this is complicated, but let me try and put it another way. 
In Jesus, we see the only person who was both fully God and fully human. He literally brought the human and divine together in one body. If we trust in him, we should experience the same thing in our lives. We should be brought back together with the God who made us. It's because of the cross and because of Jesus' unique being that there can only ever be one saviour. There can only ever be one son of God. There can only ever be one reconciler of God and human beings. Only Jesus could break the cycle of sin and make us new. Only Jesus can remove the idols from our heart, make that heart clean enough for God to come back in and take his rightful place. On the cross, Jesus achieved for us something we could never achieve on our own. All we must do now is put our faith in him. And that leads us neatly on to where we're going to finish. In his final verses, Paul says this. Once you were alienated from God, but now he's reconciled you by Christ to present you holy in his sight. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Let me say that again. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, Paul has just emphasized that Jesus accomplished this reconciliation for us. We cannot possibly make ourselves right with God through our own striving. God has made us holy, but he is also making us holy. It's a work in progress. We will be holy, it's guaranteed, but that will only be finished on the day we see God face to face. And that's because becoming holy is a process. It requires some response on our part. So in these words, Paul issues a great warning and a great promise. The warning is this. If the Colossians allow themselves to be dislodged from Jesus by the false teachers of their day and the deceptive philosophy they preached, if they let go of Jesus and sought after other things, they would find themselves in a terrible position of being removed from the hope that they once had. They would go back to square one again, alienated from God. They simply must not let that happen. They must hold on to Jesus with everything they had. And the same is true for us today. Do not let anyone persuade you otherwise. Jesus is the only hope. Walk away from him and you walk away from life. That's the great warning. Jesus is the reconciler, so stick with him. You need him. But this is the great promise. If the Colossians do hold on to Jesus, something truly beautiful will be built in their lives. Did you hear the language that Paul used? If you continue in your faith, established and firm. Established and firm. That's the language of foundations, isn't it? This is the language of a building project. The reconciliation with God that we find in Jesus is the foundation for the rest of our lives. 
God doesn't just stop when he saves us. He wants to build something beautiful within us. In fact, one day people will be able to look at our lives and see that the reconciliation we've had with God is true and genuine and real because it's totally changed us. And I hope we can see this now takes us back to the opening illustration. That brand new building at the church and the opportunity it creates for new forms of worship and outreach is proof that the church really did reconcile 10 years ago. And a life of worship and service today, a life that displays the goodness of God and the fruit of the Spirit is proof that we've held on to Jesus. God doesn't just want to rescue us. He wants to build something beautiful in our life. To finish, Paul says, This is the gospel that you have heard, has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the best news the world will ever hear. Peace with God is on offer. Peace with our neighbours, peace with ourselves is on offer if we stick fast to Jesus, our reconciler. And when you know that reconciliation for yourself, as many of us here tonight do, it should fill us with such joy and such gratitude that we want to tell as many other people as we can. I was once alienated, but now I am holy. I was once an enemy of God, but I am now without blemish. I was once an evildoer, but I am now free of all accusation, not because of me, but because of Jesus, my reconciler. Let me tell you about him. Let me show you him. You won't regret it.